We are studying over the past two months Paul's letter to the Galatians. This was a letter written to a couple of churches that he had planted in the region of southern Galatia. The cities there where he had planted churches in were in Antioch and Iconium, Lystra and Derbe. You can read about it in Luke's record of the history of the first generation of the church, the book called Acts. About 15 years after Paul himself had been dramatically converted to the Lord Jesus, he and a Christian brother from his home church left and went on a mission to plant churches in this region. They started that around the year AD 45 and they continued in this church planting mission for almost two years. About a year after that mission ended, after those baby churches in southern Galatia had been planted, he wrote this letter to correct them because they were drifting from the gospel that they had embraced. Interestingly, this letter of Paul to the churches in Galatia is the earliest of his letters in the New Testament. He wrote it probably around A.D. 48, And the letter has been called, the title of the letter has sometimes been said, this is the battle for the gospel. The gospel is the only message that if personally believed, if personally received, has the power to forgive you of your sins, to rescue you from the just condemnation of death and hell, and to give you eternal life. That's why this letter is so important. Because the Galatians were drifting from the one message that has the power to save. Many of these Galatians had been converted as Jews. And as many new converts, even today, still experience. After they converted to Christ, they experienced heavy persecution from the religious community in which they had grown up. And so it's no wonder that soon after these churches were planted a hybrid message started gaining traction. That hybrid message basically said, you don't have to be so radical. You don't need to reject your traditions. They're good traditions. In fact, you need to keep your traditions. You need Jesus and Judaism. Following Jesus is good, but don't throw out the historic Jewish practices. Don't throw out circumcision or your dietary restrictions and your holiday observances. You need to follow Jesus and obey the law of Moses. One of the problems with this hybrid message is that it's not the gospel that God gave. Paul, in the first two chapters, basically gives an autobiography of how he got the gospel message that he preaches. And he demonstrates that the one true gospel is not the one that's circulating here recently in in Galatia. Paul says that gospel is not from God. Here's how I got this gospel. And interestingly, he even describes how the gospel he preaches has authority over every human, including every apostle, including the lead apostle Peter. He tells a story about one time when his gospel had to confront the lead apostle. This gospel didn't come from people. It came from God. Another problem with this hybrid message that was so attractive to these churches is that it does not rightly interpret the Bible. And that's the issue in chapters 3 and 4. 
Paul doesn't reason in chapters 3 and 4 autobiographically, but he reasons theologically, and he demonstrates that if you read the whole Bible rightly, you'll understand that God's promised salvation for the world does not come through personal obedience to the law of Moses. That's never why God gave the law of Moses in the first place. God's salvation comes through a promised offspring of Abraham. And you'll realize that if you get the the Bible storyline, you will understand that the whole reason God gave the law is to highlight your desperate need for this coming offspring of Abraham, who would be an offspring of, of David, who would come as the Messiah, the only one who could obey the law, the only one who could take on himself the punishment that we deserve and offer salvation to anyone who takes refuge in him. Paul says, that's the story of the Bible. If you read the Bible, you'll get that story. And we're right in the middle of that theology, that theological section, that explanation of how to rightly read the Bible and understand what God was doing throughout history. Today, our text is the first seven verses of chapter four. And it's in the heart of this passage that Paul summarizes the mission statement of the Messiah, what Greg read earlier in the service. The title of today's message is simply, The Messiah's Mission Statement. At the end of chapter 3, Paul had just explained that everyone, no matter what your ethnicity or your gender or your economic class, everyone who trusts Jesus, Jesus who is Abraham's descendant, gets united with Jesus and becomes an inheritor of all the blessings God promised to Abraham. So he continues in verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, even though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. The elementary principles of this world is a tough phrase to interpret. I think what it's probably saying is it's referring to the fact that nothing inside this world, no person, no amount of obedience or performance, can can provide the rescue that we need. God's salvation doesn't come from within the world, from, from the forces within the world, from the rules and regulations within the world. No, his salvation must come from outside the world. So verse 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, as children. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. There are three glorious facets of this passage that I want to preach to all of us. And the first is this. I think you should marvel that God's plan for human history centers on Jesus. That's what the point is in the first three verses. It's there that Paul explains history using an illustration of a human being who moves from minority status to majority status. From a child who can't access his inheritance to a full adult inheritor. People debate whether Paul's 
imagery comes from the Hebrew world or from the Roman world. In one sense, it doesn't really matter. It even works in modern America. I'll share it with Hannah and me. Our children are legal heirs of everything we own. However, right now, they can't access any of it. If, God forbid, Hannah and I were to die, they would go under the custody of guardians, as we've specified in our will. And they would not begin to access their inheritance until they were 18, according to the legal terms. And even then, it would be managed by their guardians in limited disbursements until they're in their mid-20s. It's not until they're in their mid-20s that they would have full, free access to their inheritance. As minors, my children are full heirs, but not yet. That's Paul's point. They're full heirs, but not yet. That time of full inheritance is coming. That's his point. Paul uses that sort of illustration to explain that 1,500 years under the law of Moses was like a time when God's people lived as children, as minors. And during that whole period of immaturity, the law kept saying to them, you need a law keeper. You need a once-for-all sacrifice. You need a perfect king who can fix the self-centeredness of your hearts. You need the Messiah. He's coming. He's coming. Time's coming. The Messiah's coming. The whole period of their childhood, according to the illustration, while they were minors, not yet inheritors, that whole time, the law kept saying, you need Jesus, and Jesus is coming. That's Paul's point. They were looking forward to the time when they would become heirs of all that God had promised. But that's time, that time was not yet. The massive change from their minority age to their majority status, that massive change for God's people occurred, according to verse 4, when Jesus came. History centers on the coming of Jesus. And before I move on to the second point, I just want to apply this first point, picking up on the first phrase of verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Now, I've actually been thinking about an illustration. Don't worry, I'm getting ready to fix this. It's just been on the honey-do list for a, for a little bit. I've got a drip in my sink faucet. So we keep a gallon jug underneath our sink faucet all the time. And generally speaking, when I wake up in the morning and I am the first one in the kitchen, the jug is usually about three quarters full. The jug is nearly full in the morning. Now, thankfully, in the last week or so, it's not been quite as bad, so it's maybe been about half full. But drip, drip, drip. Over a long period of time, that gallon jug gets full. I've heard people describe the fullness of time, that phrase in verse 4, as the state of the Roman world in the first century. That's not wrong, and 
I think it's probably true. People will say that the Roman world had a, the, the Pax Romana, there was a time of power and peace, and they had a road system and a postal system, and, and during that time, there was one language that was the dominant language throughout, so it was the perfect time for the gospel message to spread through the world. That was the fullness of time, the exact right time. That's not the illustration that Paul's using. Paul is using an illustration of parents who for years keep telling him, you need Jesus, you need Jesus, you need Jesus, you need Jesus, you need Jesus. And then the turning point comes. They recognize they need Jesus, and at that full time is when God sends him. The fullness of time in this context must refer to the people's full recognition of their desperate need for Jesus. So I'm going to make this application to Bible readers. Some of you have never read the entire Bible. I urge you, set a goal to begin reading it or try to finish reading it over the next year or two or three. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. If you take the first Three quarters of the Bible that we call the Old Testament, here's the spoiler alert. Here's what it's all saying. You need Jesus. It's the whole point. You already know the end of the story, at least the first three quarters of the Bible. It's all saying you need Jesus. You get through the first few pages and you say, Adam has made a mess and it's getting worse. Drip, drip, drip. You read a few more pages and you say, Jacob's kids are messed up. They're a disastrous mess. Who can fix this? Drip, drip, drip. The judges are flawed. The kings of Israel, mess after mess after mess. Drip, drip, drip. No one's paying attention to the warnings of the prophets. Who in the world can fix these people? Drip, drip, drip. Jerusalem's under siege. Jerusalem's being destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. The people are decimated. The city's burned. The the refugees are taken to Babylon. Who's going to fix these people and, and fulfill the promises? Drip, drip, drip. And there comes a time when the drips have filled the jug. And that's the fullness of time when people realize their desperate recognition for Jesus. And as soon as the people were, as it were, fed up with the sin-sick hearts of all, of all people, God said, okay, now's the time that people are going to understand their desperate, desperate need for Jesus. He sends Jesus. Human history was not ready for the coming of Jesus until it was painfully full, until it was painfully full of human inability to fix themselves. That's the point of the Bible. The Bible centers on Jesus. It's it's all driving toward him. And the whole Old Testament, according to Paul in this illustration, is driving at a child's understanding that I need Jesus.
Second point, marvel that God's son came on a mission to humbly serve you. Marvel that God's son came on a mission to humbly serve you. Mission statements can be very helpful summaries of why something exists. Many companies have, have mission statements. Some of them are helpful and some are not. Several years ago, I learned that one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in this Cleveland area was changing its mission statement because its current mission was this. Again, pharmaceutical company, we develop drugs and relationships. That sounds a little sketchy, huh? <laughs> Maybe that mission statement at one time was helpful, but not anymore. There are other state mission statements that are really intriguing. For example, Lego. Lego exists, quote, to inspire and develop the builders of tomorrow. In other words, Lego wants all of its employees to recognize we don't merely exist to make toys. We don't merely exist to make money. Our mission is bigger. It's to shape people. It's to shape the future. That's the way they explain the why of their existence. Here in verses 4 and 5, Paul explains why Jesus came. How would you summarize Jesus' mission in a single sentence? Over the last year, we've actually worked through several of these in the scriptures. A year ago, we studied Mark 10.45. On Christmas, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the whole reason Jesus came. It's the why. It's the mission statement. A few months ago, we studied 1 Timothy 1. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul goes on to say, of whom I am the foremost. Mission statement of Jesus. This is why he came. Mark says it was to offer his life to purchase the freedom of those who were slaves to sin and death. He was giving himself a ransom. 1 Timothy says the whole reason he came was to rescue sinners. Just last week, Dave preached another mission statement, the most famous in the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. These are wonderful, succinct, powerful mission statements. Here's Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What a summary. Why did God send his son into the world? This verse says it was to turn slaves into sons, to change our status from condemned lawbreakers to richly endowed heirs. That's the mission. Wow! I want you to just notice three marvelous details. First, you've got to notice Jesus' eternity. 
Jesus' birth in the manger didn't begin his existence. According to Paul, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman. That means Jesus pre-existed his birth. Jesus is unlike you and me. There was a time when I and you didn't exist. There has never, ever been a time when Jesus didn't exist. You should read that phrase, God sent forth his son, and you should say, Jesus, you're holy. There's no one like you. Jesus is the son who, as John says, was in the beginning. Cry holy when you think about Jesus. Jesus never began to exist. In him was life. Cry holy. Jesus is eternal. Second, consider Jesus' humility and marvel. Jesus, God's son, humbled himself to be born of a woman. Becoming human means that he accepted the need for sleep. He accepted the need for food. He needed to pray. God the Son needing to pray. What humility! Even further, he wasn't just born of a woman. He was born under the law. That's amazing. Jesus submitted himself to every regulation of the law. He submitted himself to circumcision. He lived under food restrictions. He gave tithes. He lived according to the rules of the weekly Sabbath. And so on and so forth. Hundreds of laws Jesus willingly submitted himself to. What humility. And verse 5 says, his goal was to redeem those who were under the law. He lived under the law to redeem those under the law. And that's amazing. Because that means Jesus came to be a servant to slaves. Jesus came to serve people who were enslaved to the law. You should look at Jesus and cry, what humility. And it goes farther. The word I chose to use for this is marvel at his magnanimity. When someone forgives someone else, you say often that person is magnanimous. They're just, they have a large heart. They're willing to forgive. But, but Jesus has magnanimity that is amazing. The eternal son, this verse says, verse 5 says, he humbled himself so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus could have come to condemn us. That's what we justly deserve. We're lawbreakers. But that wasn't his mission. His mission was full of love. He redeems us from sin and death so that he can make us children of God. That's amazing love. He doesn't just reverse your sentence of condemnation. He grants you the privilege of adoption. He doesn't just want to forgive you. He wants you as part of his family. It's not just forgiveness. He wants you to be close to him. 
to be his family. Amazing love. It goes beyond the kind of magnanimity that we've ever seen in the world. Forgiveness, yes. Family, yes. The message of the Bible is about the most wonderful love. God sent Jesus to redeem slaves so that he could adopt them as children. That's a wonderful message. But notice that for you to embrace that message means that you have to come to terms with the woefulness of that message before you experience the wonderfulness of it. The first part of that message demands that you realize, apart from Jesus, I am a slave of sin and death. Apart from Jesus, I am a lawbreaker in God's eyes, and nothing that I can do can reverse my condemnation. I am justly deserving of God's wrath. I am deserving of eternal hell. You must recognize that you need to be redeemed before you can experience the wonder of Jesus not merely forgiving you, but wanting you to be part of his family. This is a wonderful message, but some of you have not ever humbly admitted the woefulness of it. And I wonder, is God working in your heart to humble you this morning so that you would, maybe for the first time, say, I, I have thought of myself up to this time as a pretty good person, and I don't like to think of myself as a person who can't fix myself, who can't save myself. Would you admit today that you are unable to get into God's good favor. That if it's up to you, you're going to hell. Would you admit that? That you are enslaved to the law and the law calls you a lawbreaker worthy of all the consequences that the law demands? And would you say, Jesus, you're the only perfect law keeper? Jesus, you died so that lawbreakers like me, if we would take refuge in you, could be forgiven and we could become full heirs of all the promises of God. Would you accept the woe of the message so that you can experience the wonder of the message? I invite you, if you have never turned from your sin and trusted Jesus, who is earth's crucified and risen and returning king, if you have never trusted him as your Lord and your Savior, I urge you to turn today, trust him today. This is the message of the passage. Jesus came on this mission. And if you're going to understand Christmas rightly, truly, then you're going to understand, you're going to have to understand rightly your condition. Third and finally, Christian, marvel that you're now God's dear child and heir. According to verse 6, for everyone who has trusted God the Son, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. Notice the triunity of God in this verse. God the Father wants us to be his children and he planned out the adoption and sent God the Son on the mission. God the Son made it possible. He died on the cross and then rose again to redeem from sin and death all who would take refuge in him. 
And God, the Spirit, then, is sent by God into the heart, into the spirit of every believer to make us feel our adoption. He indwells us to personally assure us that we're God's children. And Paul says there at the end of verse 6 that the mark of the Spirit's work in the heart of Christians is that especially in trials, when you're crying, you cry out to God like this. Abba. Father. Abba is an Aramaic term. It was often one of the first words, if not the first word, that any child in this culture would learn. In our culture, it'd be roughly equivalent to dada. Dada. You try to keep getting your child, say dada, dada, dada. Paul uses this term to say everyone who trusts the gospel is given the Spirit, and the Spirit works in us, especially in our trials, a a crying out, an instinctive crying out to God. Dada. Father. Daddy. Abba. We are personally assured that because of Christ, We're God's children. The Spirit says it to us in our hearts. You trusted Christ. You're God's. You're his child. And this is where I'll end this morning. Christmas is a happy season. And Christmas is a heavy season. The first Christmas was heavy with trials. There was a lot of family drama with a near divorce. There was a horribly inconvenient delivery in an animal shelter, not in a hospital LDR. There was local infanticide that ended up forcing Joseph and Mary to flee as refugees to a different country. The first Christmas was heavy, and Christmas today is still heavy. For many of us, even this very week, our lives have been marked by sickness, by grief, and by loss. And and I just want to urge you, Tri-County, this week in particular, remember why Jesus came. God sent his son to redeem you and to turn a slave into a child, a richly endowed heir. And God also sent the spirit of his son into your heart so that you would cry, Abba. My dear church family, I say, don't quench the Spirit this week. The Spirit is working in you to cry to God as your Father and to take your heavy burdens to Him. Go to Him with your trials. Cry out to him. The Spirit is at work in you to produce this, to assure you of this. As I think back over the past week, one of my children has been highly anxious over school deadlines. One of my children miserably failed in a peer competition. And one has not been feeling well. And you know what? each wanted you know what helped each one of them in each one of their situations they just wanted to be near me 
They wanted to be emotional in front of me. They wanted to hear me say, it's going to be okay. That's what children need. So children of God, in your physical weaknesses, this week, cry to God. Dada. In your loss, go to your father. Dada. In your frustration over injustice, whether it's local or whether it's international, in your frustration over family drama and ostracism, go to God, cry to God, Dada. Don't quench the spirit. Jesus, God the Son, was sent on a mission to turn slaves into children. And God, the Spirit, is sent into the heart of every believer to make us feel it experientially. So this week, children of God, call out to God as your daddy because of Jesus. Let's pray.